Hi, I'm Mason, pastor of Vision and Preaching here at Resurrection Church. Thanks for tuning in to this teaching from one of our morning worship services. This is not meant in any way to supplant your teaching at your local church, but we hope you find this helpful in your walk with Christ. Who is this man? The question lingers through every chapter of Mark. Three groups of people seem to keep reappearing in Mark's gospel with their own answer to the question. The crowds were astonished by Christ. They watched him perform miracles and teach with more authority than they had ever heard. Is this Elijah? Is this John the Baptist? Or is this someone far greater? The religious leaders hated Christ. They couldn't stand the attention he received, but more importantly, they couldn't stand the threat to their power that he posed. The disciples, they followed him. Sure, they will spend most of the gospel quite confused, hardly understanding why Jesus is saying and doing such things, but they trusted him. As we journey through Mark, the gospel writer will pose to us a question. Who do you say he is? Every miracle, every interaction, every parable, they're all leading somewhere. They're all leading to a coronation, but it's not a coronation you'd expect because Jesus isn't the sort of king you'd expect. Good morning, church. Today's uh, sermon text is uh, gonna be Mark chapter eight. Sierra, Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And he called the crowd to him with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up him, his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to, to gather together today. Um, Father God, let us lay aside our traditions and our presuppositions and hear your word as it is preached. Allow Jason to lay aside any, any presuppositions, any traditions, and just preach your word, Father God. Open our hearts and our minds to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How are we doing? Am I on? Yeah, I'm on. I, I, can, I can hear myself. Hear a little echo. Um, good morning, church. How are we doing? Everybody good? Uh, my name is Jason. I am not Mason. I am not the lead pastor of Resurrection Church. Uh, but I am a Marshall fan. Amen? A, yeah, there we go. 
See, here's the cool thing about being up here um, is that if you say amen, people just amen back even if they disagree with it. So that was a sizable amen in response, and I, I don't even think that, that there are that many Marshall fans in here. So it's super exciting, guys. It's going to be a good day. Um, either way, a team from West Virginia is going to be in the Sweet 16. Um, some would say that West Virginia's true team would be Marshall because, um, uh, because you know, Marshall it plays a bunch of native West Virginians, but whatever. Uh, you know, some would say that. Uh, but I'm excited to be with you guys. I'm excited to jump back into the Mark narrative. This morning, we're going to be in chapter, we're gonna be in chapter 8, verses 27 through 38, as was just read. And the main point of today's sermon is this. Our confession must lead to our transformation if we are to be disciples of Jesus. We want to be people who move from really having our confession be just an intellectual one, just one of our heads and our mouths, to being one of our heart and of our hands. But also, we want to retain our confession. We don't want to lose sight of it being in our heads and our mouths. We want to, we want to value our confession highly, but we also want to be a people uh, that lets our confession really move into our transformation. So we begin in Mark 8, verses, verse 27. Jesus is moving on from Bethesda into the villages of Caesarea Philippi. It's a town only about 25 miles-ish north of Galilee and the, this religious center in Israel, but it is worlds and worlds away religiously. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was known for being a place of really true, detestable idol worship. Uh, they worshiped the god Pan, and uh, they, oftentimes, as was customary, in the worship of Pan, prostitution, bestiality, really horrific acts were committed. And Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, this lush area uh, geographically, but this detestable area worshipfully, and he delivers to them a message. And he, kind of, and he really reveals himself to them for the first time, uh, or they start to see him for who he is for the first time. Jesus takes them to the unlikeliest of places to deliver to them a, and to really to reveal to them the unlikeliest of messages. We're, we're going to see that they still, they, they, they still don't fully get it. They, they, they are still stuck in this rut, in this mindset that the Messiah is to come and was to come to deliver them politically, to deliver them religiously, to deliver them geographically, but Jesus takes them to an unlikely place and delivers them the unlikely message that the Messiah came to deliver them spiritually. And this deliverance is finally, they finally begin to understand it. And in yesterday, or excuse me, in last week's sermon, we talked about uh, Jesus really discussing with them kind of comically the bread of the leaven and the Pharisees versus, uh, versus the bread of life, which is him, and told them to be aware of the bread of, and the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they didn't get it because they couldn't see. But this week, they're going to start to see a little more. They're going to start to see Jesus for who he is just a little more. Um, today's theme, really this theme of identifying who Jesus is and getting this confession of who Jesus is and getting it right, really starts all the way back in chapter 4. If you want to flip back there for just a second in Mark chapter 4, towards the end of it, in verses 35 through 41, um, this is after Jesus has done a bunch of stuff. Uh, 
from before Mark 4 and after Mark 4, he has cleansed, uh, he has cleansed the leper. He has healed people. Uh, he has taught. He has fed 5,000 people. Then he's fed 4,000 people. He has walked on water. And then we pick up in Mark 4, and the disciples are with Jesus on a boat. And we know this story. Jesus is asleep. The disciples are freaking out. And they wake Jesus up. And Jesus, I, I, I mean, I'm sure he was really calm when he, was, when he was awakened in this moment. I wouldn't have been. But he wakes up. He walks out, says, peace be still. And it is peaceful. And the disciples ask, and, or they more so proclaim, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? But Jesus doesn't answer them, or at least we're not told that Jesus answers them in that passage. He doesn't reveal himself immediately and go, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am God incarnate. I am God in the flesh. He doesn't answer. He, he lets it fester. He lets it fester in their minds for weeks and or months. And finally, Jesus comes to them at this moment, taking them to this idol factory, this idol, this very idolatrous, disgusting place in Caesarea Philippi. And then he sits them down and he asks them, who do people say that I am? He poses the most crucial question to the disciples that he could possibly pose. And he, and, and he also poses the most crucial question to us. Because who we, what we say about who Jesus is, how we identify Jesus determines our destiny. It determines our here and now, and it, it has eternal implications. So getting Jesus right is everything, and missing Jesus is everything as well. So they give him a few answers. The disciples say, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, some say you are really the incarnate, the reincarnate Elijah. And others say you are one of the prophets. So he takes those answers, like, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, that's, he, he, I'm, I'm sure he's probably like, yeah, that's wrong, that's wrong, yeah, no, no, no. And then he finally turns it on them and he says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, always gun-ho Peter, comes in with the answer and says, you are the Christ. Peter, for the first time in the gospel narrative, is the first human to identify who Jesus is, to, to the first person to truly and accurately identify who Jesus is. And this is a huge answer. This is a huge answer because getting, and, and I, it was going through sermon preparation this week and just thinking about this, I was struck with a couple of different thoughts about really getting Jesus right and getting this confession right. Because this, if we believe what the gospel says, if we believe what scripture says, getting Getting Jesus right, confessing the correct things about Jesus, determines our destiny. We know Romans 10.9 requires a confession as Jesus as Lord. That, that is really a prerequisite for salvation, to confess that Jesus is Lord. We know that Scripture requires this confession, but I think that in our current context in our current culture here in the 21st century church with all of our presuppositions and all of all the baggage that we bring in, I think, and I, I think it'd be accurate to estimate that we devalue the importance of a confession of Jesus as Lord more than we should. I think we shouldn't devalue it at all, but I think we devalue it a lot, and I think we devalue it for a couple of reasons. Because going into this, 
the, the gospel. Scripture does not devalue getting Jesus right, confessing intellectually who Jesus is. That historically in Christianity, your confession was re- your entry point into fellowship. What you confessed about Jesus. Confessing that he is the Christ, that he is fully God and fully man, that he is reigning now supreme and forevermore, and one day he is coming back to deliver his people in full. That he is God. Confessing that was the entry point into fellowship with the church. But I think one of the ways that we devalue a proper confession, that we devalue the reality of someone getting Jesus right, I think one of the ways we do that is, and and this is incredibly common, is that we like to, and I don't even think we completely realize that we do it, but we love to impose ethics tests on people who are maybe new to the faith, new to the church, or correctly confess that Jesus is Lord. Um, There's an example of it recently, and this one is a very relevant example to your lives. Um, Chance the Rapper, I know you guys are all friends with him, Um, so this happened about a year ago, a year or two ago. Um, Chance the Rapper, uh, he's a great rapper. Um, I don't really know how to describe him. I'm, I'm white. Um, but, but Chance is incredible. And Chance, uh, a lot of people think that Chance really has kind of picked up the mantle that a guy like Kanye West left off. If you're familiar with pop culture and hip-hop and stuff like that, Kanye West um, had a lot of these religious themes in his songs. Um, and, and, I mean, he seemed to kind of get it, but then, you know, Kanye's Kanye, and we know what happened there. Chance the Rapper has come out, and he's, he, he, he's really imposed a lot of these religious themes in some of his songs. He has gotten this confession about who Jesus is right, but he has some ethical problems. There are some things in his songs, there are some, some things he would say he also believes and that he does that do not match up with this biblical model of ethics with, with how we should behave, with how we should believe about a whole host of issues. So the conversation, and this, is really, there was, this, was, this really heated up last year, was, is Chance a Christian? Is he a Christian or is he not? And people denounced his Christianity mainly because of his ethics. And that's not to downplay the value of getting ethical issues right, of getting, thing, of getting sexual issues right, of getting issues right relating to a whole host of things, on, on mental health, on race, on whatever it might be, any behavioral or belief issue. You need to get those right. But that is a discipleship issue. We have to, we have to get to a place where, where the entry point into fellowship, where we value a correct confession, because the Lord values a correct confession. That is everything. If you get that right, I, I, I just don't, I, I don't want us to leave and go over that and go, yeah, you know, I, I get Jesus right. Let's move to the meat of the text. We, we, we all get that. No, that is a huge deal. Marvel at the fact that you were born in a place where people regularly confess that Jesus is the Christ. Because I think if we don't marvel at that fact, if we don't marvel at the fact that we are born with this really kind of this predisposition to be close to spiritual truths, to be around people who confess Jesus as the Christ, we devalue this confession. Because for most of us, one of the other ways 
that really the, the second way that we devalue a confession, the first way is imposing this ethics test. The second way is we see plenty of people who confess Jesus as the Christ, who confess Jesus as Lord, but obviously don't live it. To a degree where it's just heinous. Um, I, there was, so when I, was, uh, when I was growing up, when I was in high school, um, there would be, there, there was, I don't know, if, has anyone ever been to a judgment house? Those common? You guys know what a judgment house? Every, yeah, Trey Garlis, yeah, yeah. Judgment houses are, I don't, I don't know how common they are amongst like the rest of the populace and the rest of the church in America, um, but here in southern Appalachia, we love those bad boys. They are salvation factories, and it's a good place to where people get, people literally get the hell scared out of them. And I, I don't say that crassly. I say that like they want, they, they are so scared that they just make these snap confessions. They make these snap decisions to accept Jesus. And then obviously nothing happens from there. But that is really indicative of this culture where everyone confesses Jesus as the Christ, even if there is obviously no fruit in their life, even if there obviously is no evidence that someone does actually believe that Jesus is the Christ. And just because that is commonplace here in Appalachia, just because that is commonplace here in America, does not and should not devalue the fact that Jesus and the gospel deeply values people who confess Jesus as the Christ. And getting that right changes everything. And getting that right is your entry point into fellowship. If you get Jesus right, you get everything right. A correct confession is central to the Christian faith, and the cheapness with which some treat it does not invalidate its eternal weight. So this is huge, and Peter, compelled by faith, confesses Jesus as the Messiah. But if we are, have been paying attention over the past few weeks, and if we are familiar with these gospel stories throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Jesus is not, or excuse me, we know that Peter is not the first person to correctly identify who Jesus is. Who's the first person, or should I say being? The demons. They always get Jesus right. The demons know Jesus like a book. They know him. They get him right. They identify him. They don't miss on Jesus. Intellectually, the demons know far more about Jesus than I could. Or, or I do. If you wanted an intellectual sermon, I mean, uh, I, I wouldn't advise against this. Let a demon preach it. We see Mark chapter 4. The, the question is asked. A couple verses later, at the beginning of Mark 5, Jesus heals a man with a demon. And the demon, and crying out with a loud voice, the, the demon possessing the man says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The demons identify who Jesus is on a dime. They always identify who he is. So the question is, as we kind of live in this tension of valuing eternally our confession and our identification of who Jesus is and correctly getting that and seeing our identity in our identification of who he is, there is going to be this tension. And it really is this tension between the head and the heart. 
How, do, how can we not only get Jesus right, but really get Jesus right? How can our transformation, how, or how can our confession begin our transformation? Because I think some of us, if we're honest, uh, I would say some of us and all of us are in that spot today. We, uh, the, the majority of you all get this confession right. You identify correctly who Jesus is. You confess that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus has delivered you in part, and he is coming one day to deliver you in full, that he is your sufficiency before God that he is the Messiah, he is your righteousness. You get those things right intellectually. You can say that. We're a fairly theologically mature church in that way, across the board. We get that. But we all also know that just getting that intellectually, I mean the second half of Romans 10.9, confessing that Jesus is Lord and believing in him with your heart, we know there's this connection there. And if we know that if we don't get it, that is a sign that we don't get it. So how can we start to get it? In the crevices of our souls, I think that many of us wonder if we too are like some of the people we know. The people who confess Jesus easily because that's what you do culturally, but are heinous and hypocritical, and we know without a doubt aren't walking with Jesus and are not disciples of Jesus. And then others of us, we are some of us wonder that, and many of us know that. We are painfully aware of this already, but not yet their tension that we live in. To where we, we get this confession right, we get it intellectually right, but it is difficult to get it into our hearts. We get this right, but it, there, there, there seems to be like this disconnect there. It's like the tube from your head to your heart to your hands, that sort of model that doesn't exist, but I just made it up, that thing. We, we feel like we can't connect that. How does the knowledge that we possess, how, how does this knowledge, this head knowledge, this head knowledge that we would communicate changes lives and changes the world and brings dead people spiritually to life? How does this go from our head to our heart? How do we begin to be not only a confessional people, but a transformed people? Well, let's read. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter, who so eloquently got it just a few verses earlier, totally blows it here. And it's actually really funny if you think about it a little. Um, Peter is the first human to confess Jesus as the Christ. And if you go to the Matthew version of this story in Matthew 16, Jesus responds and just blesses Peter out the wazoo. He says, Peter, you are blessed. You are the rock on which I will build my church. And if we know anything about the disciples, we know that they are uber competitive. Just a couple chapters from now in Mark, James and John are going to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to, we want to sit at your, one at your right and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus goes, you don't know what you're talking about. You can't drink the cup that I'm going to drink. And they go, yes, we can. And Jesus is like, you don't know what you're talking about. The disciples are dumb and competitive, and Peter just got it. And Jesus just said, I'm going to build my church on you. So you know Peter is 
amped right now. I mean, he has got it. These ultra-competitive disciples, he's, Jesus is saying that, and Peter's like, what's up? What's up? He's so excited at this point. And I don't know if you've ever thought something was going really well for you, and then you just absolutely blow it and lose it. Um, but Peter really blows it here. You may have blown it in your life, but you've never pulled a Peter to where you go from being as high as possible and probably trash-talking the rest of the disciples to four verses later getting called Satan by Jesus. That's a 180 right there. If you, I, I don't know if you've ever, I, for instance, um, I was thinking about this, and I was kind of thinking about um, the first official date that Hannah and I went on. Um, it, I thought things, I'm the eternal optimist, I thought things were going really well. She was new to West Virginia or new to this area, and I wasn't, so I was going to, I guess, kind of get her to go on a date with me and show her some West Virginia things. So we went to the pumpkin house in Canova, and um, I don't know what happened, but long story short, this was our first date, and I ended up introducing her to my parents, um, which is, I, I, I'll just be honest with you guys, if you ever find yourself on a first date and you're introducing someone to your parents, you've probably messed up along the way somewhere. You might want to go back and kind of reevaluate and be like, oh, shoot, shouldn't have done that. Um, but it happened. But the eternal optimist I was, I still thought it was going pretty well. I think that speaks more to my uh, perception than anything. And then on the way back, she graciously and kindly lets me off and kind of, kind of kills me. Um, it, it's okay, though. I got the ring now, so, <laughs> so we're good. Who won that battle? Am I right? Am I right? But Peter blows it here. He goes from being the rock, and, and, and obviously Jesus is gracious, but you can imagine kind of the 180 that's done here. I'm the rock on which Jesus is going to build his church, and now I'm called Satan. And Jesus is identifying very clearly this lack between Peter's head knowledge, this intellectual affirmation, this intellectual identification of who Jesus is, and this transformation of who Peter is. And we're all there, so let's, let's think about it. Let's look at it. There are a couple exhortations that we can find in uh, Jesus' rebuke of Peter. And the first one is found, well, there's one that we can find in his rebuke of Peter, and there's another one we're going to find in the next four verses of when he speaks to the crowd. The first one is this, to live as disciples of Christ who, that let our, our confession guide, influence, and determine our transformation, we must first pursue a renewed mind. So this morning, if, if you find yourself, like me, uh, noticing and being painfully aware of this gap between the head and the heart, the first thing we can do is begin and repent and pursue a renewed mind. We see this in verse 33. After Jesus calls Peter Satan, Jesus says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul uh, discusses this. He spent the first 11 chapters of Romans gloriously walking through these gospel truths and these truths about the character and justice of God in salvation. And then, as is customary in the epistles of Paul, he begins the latter half or the latter chunk with exhortations about Christian living. And his first exhortation to the church in Rome is this, 
in verse 2 of chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, which is what we are addressing today, but be transformed, which is what we are desiring, by the renewal of your mind. The renewed mind is a mind that is honoring God. Pursuing a renewed mind is really our first step today in living a transformed life as a disciple of Jesus. Peter was guilty of trying to conform the Messiah into being what he wanted the Messiah to be or what he expected the Messiah to be. Jesus didn't strike Peter down, but instead appealed to his mind and instead began to appeal to his heart. And he told him to set his mind on the things of God and not the things of man. And that is our exhortation, is that if we are to be effective disciples who grow in this transformation, we must have a mind that is set not on the things of man, but on the things of God. And this is a truth that we find all throughout Scripture. Philippians 4.8, a very common one. It exhorts us to think on only whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, just, lovely, commendable, excellent, and praiseworthy. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul exhorts us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The fruitful Christian life will only be lived out in one who doesn't live a life dwelling on wrong, meaningless, or temporal things, but instead on one that knows and is captivated by truth. And I think about my life, and I think about I'm, I'm sure that my life is fairly similar to your life in some ways. I think about all the, just the meaningless things that I dwell on every day. The meaningless things that really captivate me. The meaningless things that shape my thought patterns. So th- that might be a, a thought project for you in the coming hours, in the coming days. What meaningless things do you think about? What do you waste your mental energy on? Is it sharpening? Is it sanctifying? Are you looking at things from a self-centered perspective? Or are you looking at things from a God-centered perspective? And there, there, there are a couple very easy litmus tests to view, to, to really apply to understand where you're at. In situations where things don't go right, are you more prone to complain? Are you more prone uh, to bicker? Are you more prone to argue? Are you more prone to despair? Or are you more prone to view this as a sanctifying moment, that the sovereign Lord of the universe allowed this to happen to you so that you would grow in sanctification, so that you would glorify him, that he has allowed this for your good, Romans 8, and for his glory. I'm not saying, I'm not saying you should abandon your hobbies. I'm not saying you should quit your job. I'm not, I'm, not saying any, I'm not saying you should really alter your life in these massive ways. I'm saying you can do the same things you do, but what guides your thought patterns? What perspective are you approaching the situations that you find yourself in on a day-to-day basis? Because I would venture to believe if you come in here week after week, month after month, year after year with the same problems, and you come in here week after week with the same lack of zeal in worship, and you walk in here like a zombie every week, there is a great shot. There is a 100% shot that you are not pursuing a renewed mind. Therefore, you are not living a transformed life, and your confession is not guiding your life. 
Do the truths of Scripture captivate your Netflix binging? How much time, I, I remember a John Piper tweet, which is always a great way to start a sentence. Um, John Piper has a very fascinating Twitter, but, uh, but Piper mentioned at one point, he said, uh, we will, social media will really be this uh, light to how much time we have wasted. It, in view of eternity, um, social media is going to show us that we waste so much time. I'm paraphrasing what Piper said. But how, how much time do we waste on meaningless things? Uh, I, I know some of you are fasting for Lent off of social media and, and, and doing various different things. And I'm sure what you've seen through that fast is that you have really grown spiritually, that the Lord has blessed that. I have never met a person who has regretted spending less time thinking on a self-centered life. I promise you this. I promise you this. The extra 15 minutes that you sacrifice your spiritual health for each morning to sleep in, yourself 10 years from now is not going to be thankful for that. But I promise you this. If you pursue a renewed mind, you're going to be a better person here. And I'm not just saying, you know, better, just you know, in, in kind of a general sense, I'm saying your joy will be more full. You are going to live a more transformed, holy life. Pursuing a renewed mind is not a, it's not an elective. Pursuing a renewed mind is a necessity for someone who is going to live as an effective disciple of Jesus Christ. Pursuing a, a renewed mind has eternal significance. Because if you don't set your mind on the things of God, the Christian life will only look positive to you when it's convenient for you. And that's indicative of so one of the most striking things, and I talk about this a lot, um, going through and working in college ministry, are seeing, peop- seeing people who really have this like kind of bottle rocket Roman candle faith where they are just zealous as can be, and then they disappear in like two minutes. And what it really shows is that Christianity, this living as a disciple, was positive for them and looked great to them when it was convenient for them. And if you want to persevere, and if you want to be the 80-year-old, I mean, this is such a great thought. Being 80 years old, sitting on your porch, Drinking an Arnold Palmer, hopefully it's been replaced to another name because, you know, I, I think that, I, I personally think that we should change the name of Arnold Palmer. Um, I, I know, that, 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 that's, that's a really unpopular perspective. I'm not a hipster, but I think that we can, you know, I, there, are, there have been so many variations to Arnold Palmer. I think that, you know, you have Arnold Palmer with the raspberry and stuff like that. We should change that name. I'm going to start that uh, GoFundMe thing. Just give a lot of money to that. Um, but 80 years old, and you have persevered through and in the faith, and you can sit really on your deathbed, and you can go, you know what, I ran the race, I fought the good fight. And you will only do that with a renewed mind, because you will only live as a disciple when it's convenient for you if you don't. Faithful discipleship in persecution, in suffering, and in loss depends on the grace of seeing circumstances from God's perspective, rather than in terms of human cost. This week, you're probably like me, you find yourself in that to a degree of wasting time and of not pursuing your renewed mind. 
Um, the answer is very simple. The answer is just to repent this week, and I don't say that lightly, but I say literally just change your perspective on that issue. This week, repent. This week, pursue a renewed mind. Don't try to reinvent the wheel with this. You don't need to read your Bible 18 hours a day. But what you do need to do is start to develop patterns of life and habits of life that lead you to pursue a renewed mind. Whether that is waking up 15 minutes early. Whether that is spending your lunch break reading a book, listening to a good podcast. The best thing you can do this week, and I know this sounds incredibly elementary, the best thing you can do this week is pray and read scripture for 15 minutes extra. Let's put the bar, we can put the bar as low as we want, but the best thing you can do is show signs of repentance and show models of repentance to begin to pursue a renewed mind, to live as a transformed disciple in light of this confession that Jesus is the Christ. Moving on, our, sec, our, our third really main point, we're going to touch on this pretty quickly, verses 34 through 38. Let's read. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So there are three quick points to note here, and one final sort of overarching point to, you, to use as the fuel for it all. Uh, the first point in living as a transformed disciple in light of our confession that Jesus is the Christ is to deny yourself. We see this in verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So do you know that you should dwell and be captivated by the truth of Scripture? Do you know that your prayer life should improve, but you want to sleep in that extra 15 minutes, but you'd rather spend your evenings uh, going to the office for the 16th time this year? Would you rather do that than pursue a renewed mind? Well, the first thing you need to do is deny yourself. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't, don't overthink it, but go, you know what? That's not going to benefit me. What's going to benefit me is pursuing a renewed mind. What's going to benefit me is exercising self-control. What's going to benefit me is this, and that. this is not going to benefit me. I don't necessarily have to have emotions that are overwhelming to do this certain thing to do this certain thing. So if the emotions and the zeal, if, if it's not there yet, still do it, and it'll come. Spurgeon, and I'm going to paraphrase him again, um, Spurgeon talked about uh, prayerlessness and, and living with, this, with a lack of desire to pray. And if you find yourself the, in, in that situation where you're like, you know what, I just don't want to pray, the best thing you can do is pray through it. The best thing you can do when living a life that lacks zeal at that moment, the best thing you can do when you go, you know what, I don't want to pursue a renewed mind this week, is to deny yourself and do that. And it might be hard initially, and there will be days. It will fluctuate. It will be hard, but the best thing you can do is to deny yourself. The second thing you can do is to take up your cross. Continuing on in verse 34, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Uh, Luke, in the Luke gospel telling version of this, adds the word daily to it. 
this notes a few things. First, your habits matter. The habits and the patterns of life that you develop matter. If you develop good, godly habits on a daily basis, you will, I promise you, you will see fruit from that. You will begin to love new things, and you will, and your heart will begin to change. What you love will begin to change. This, act of, this initial act of repentance, of pursuing a renewed mind, of developing godly habits, it will translate into your heart as you dwell on scriptural truth. Basic head knowledge, you can fill your head full of theological truth the rest of your life, but if you don't develop good habits and you don't develop godly habits to instill that and you don't dwell on these truths, and if you don't ask the Spirit to invigorate your heart with these truths, it won't change. But if you do that, if you take up your cross and daily walk with the Lord in this, it will change. You will begin to love what is right. You will begin to love different things. Taking up your cross with the word daily in it from the Luke version also points to one thing, that this is a lifelong process. There will be fluctuation. We will painfully be aware of the already but not yet there of the Christian life. There will be setbacks. But the good news is that Ephesians 1, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. And that the Lord is faithful to us in the midst of that. And the third is, uh, at the end of verse 34, just to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus. So what is the fuel for all this? What is the fuel for all from From this, trans, this confession, this confession of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, that he is Lord, that he is God, getting that right, and then developing into a transformed life. What is the fuel to pursue all this, especially when our emotions and our desires may not be there on a day-to-day basis, especially with the fluctuation of our zeal or the lack thereof? What is the fuel? Let's check out verse 8. I mean, excuse me, let's check out uh, verse 36 of chapter 8. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Uh, I think oftentimes we look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man um, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I think we oftentimes present this and look at this in a little too much of a dichotomous way. And that we look at it as being, all right, either I'm going to have joy and happiness and vitality of life here and just go to hell, or I'm not going to have it here, but I'm going to have it in the next life. I'm going to have this, uh, jo- you know, I'm, gonna ha- I'm, I'm getting this joy one day, but it's not going to be here. And I think that's a very, uh, that, that is a blatantly false dichotomy. The reality is that your profit by selling your soul for the world isn't actually a profit at all. The reality is that sacrificing godly habits, that sacrificing the pursuit of a renewed mind for the gain of more sleep, for the gain of uh, convenience, for the gain of, you know, lack of zeal, so I don't want to try. The reality is that that profit isn't a profit at all. The reality is that selling your soul, that foregoing the, the, the good things of God, the good things of life, the way you were created to worship him, the way life was created to go ethically and morally, the reality of selling your soul to walk in opposition of the ways of God, to walk with a lack of worship for God is not a profit at all. 
but you will see that it is a net loss and a huge one, and it is a net loss here and now and forevermore. Um, And I'll invite the band back up, and we'll close in a second. Um, One of, and and this is, I can't remember who pointed this out, but one of the biggest sections of any bookstore you're ever going to see is the self-help section. And that's not a groundbreaking observation by any stretch. But what I think it does communicate painfully to us is that we are 100%, our culture is hyper aware that things are broken, that things are not going the way they should. That the the things that we would desire to sell our souls for, the joys that we believe are there, actually aren't there. And what we believe is going to satisfy us is never ever, ever enough. The lies that we have bought into, um, or, or maybe even the good, the, the, the things that are true, but separating them from this worship of God is never satisfying. And the reality is that sacrificing and selling your soul, selling this pursuit of godliness in light of our transformation is no profit at all and will leave you miserable. So, but, but here's the good news. The good news is this week you can repent and you can pursue the Lord in spirit and in truth. This week you can pursue a renewed mind. This week you can deny yourself. This week you can exercise self-control compelled by the Spirit of God. And this week, if the emotions and the zeal, they're lacking, pursue it anyway and watch them come. The good news is that if we get Jesus right, if we identify in his identification, if we identify in his death, that he is the Messiah and his life is now mine, the good news is that the Lord is with us forever. 2 Timothy uh, 2.13 says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. The good news is that if we identify in his death, that if we identify him as the Messiah, if we get that confession right, he is with us forever. He will remain faithful to us in the hardships. He will remain faithful to us in the seasons of disobedience. He will remain faithful to us when we lack zeal in the most disgusting of ways. But to live as disciples of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of the Lord, is to let our confession influence and guide our transformation. And to let this truth that Jesus is the Christ guide our lives, to pursue a renewed mind, to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow him for the joy that is set before us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy that you show towards us. Lord, we thank you uh, that you are the Messiah, that you are Lord. That you who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, that you took our sin, that you gave us your righteousness, and that we are free and we are holy in your sight because of your righteousness. Father, I pray that these truths compel us to worship now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.